Music is yeah. all around us in mm, Manchester. You would be hard pressed to avoid having a musical conversation with anybody in mm. Manchester. Meet DJ Paulette. If you've ever taken to a Manchester dance floor, there's a good chance you've heard of Paulette. She's been soundtracking Manchester nightlife since the 90s and was the Hacienda's first female resident DJ for their iconic club night, Flesh. Paulette is a true born and bred proud Mancunian. She grew up in North Manchester and went to Manmet to study for an English degree. We spoke just a few weeks after the release of her first book, Welcome to the Club, The Life and Lessons of a Black Woman DJ. It tells a story over 30 years of living a creative life, being the first woman in a boys club and using music to shake things up. You'll hear what telling that story meant to Paulette in our conversation. And it's a conversation we recorded right in the centre of Manchester at Boodle's Jewellers. So you'll hear the sounds of the jewellery shop in the background. Make sure you listen out for a perfectly timed champagne cork pop as well. So we reckon somebody bought a really big diamond. So how do you go from being an English graduate with an office job to world-renowned DJ leading the way for music culture? I'm Lisa Morton and this is We Built This City. DJ Paulette, thank you so much for joining us on We Built This City. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited. First of all, you're a born and bred Mancunian. Yeah, big time. So tell me a bit about your background. Yeah, I am very much Manchester, Manchester, Manchester. <laughs> I've worked, in fact, here's a little known fact. One of my first job, well, my first proper paid salary job after leaving and finishing my A-levels, I worked for the CWS. So I am cooperative wholesale society trained and I started off in um, personnel and training, industrial relations with the travel and banking departments. And I trained all over there, food manufacturing group, did a bit of everything. And the co-op, that's really interesting, isn't it, then? So that's a a proper Manchester institution. Yeah, and uh, now it's a weird thing. Every time one of my friends lives in Islington Mill and another one of my friends lives in this huge block of flats on Pollard Street. And every the first time I went to see her in this flat, I was like, I used to work in this factory. Because wow. it was a, yeah. it was a CWS building, so you know they've sold off a lot of property, like where the travel was on Balloon Street. They've sold that; that's gone. And every time I look at it, I'm like, God, I hate that. <laughs> you didn't, do you I not didn't like enjoy the job, that did building. Didn't enjoy that. working in that building at all, <laughs> or Pollard Street necessarily. But um, no, it was just a weird place for an 18 year old management trainee to work and you know a a young black girl to work in a predominantly white you know when you're working in factories and you're telling factory workers what to do when you're 18 (laughs) it was it was a real baptism of fire that you know and looking back on it it's like that was intense (laughs) really really intense but it was good training and you had your little kind of 
skirt suit on in the day and then you were clubbing yeah. at night. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. I was just so proper in the day. Yeah, and I remember this particular red suit that had a, like a red sunray pleated skirt and big shoulder pads jackets because it was the 80s, was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was doing a similar time. To, I used to have a little, one of those cards from the uh, principals where I used yeah. to go and oh, get me <laughs> on Market principals Street. Principals next to where I'll go to. <laughs> You know, it's just like, oh my God, <laughs> yes. And French Connection. Yeah. Um, and then in the evening, I was working for Piccadilly Radio. I'd get my little Marantz and I'd go to gigs at the Apollo or, or the Hacienda. And I remember seeing like Mantronics at the Hacienda and doing this gig review. And, and um, you know, one of the stories in the book is that I got my Hacienda membership on the back of saying, oh, I'm going to write this gig review for the Manchester Evening News and Piccadilly Radio. I wasn't. <laughs> I hadn't even sorted it out with them. It was a total blag, but it was a blag that worked. And um, they gave me a lifetime membership for the club, lifetime VIP membership for the club. And, you know, on that night, guest list for five mates, free drinks for five mates. And then I was like up in the DJ booth in the VJ booth interviewing people with my little Marantz um, for this feature for Saturday Express, which I took it back to Piccadilly Radio. I, I had done it um, and I put it all together, edited it and everything. And then they said it was too grown up for the show because it was, you know, it right. was a teen, yeah. you know, it was a teen magazine lifestyle program and it was just like a bit grown up. But I didn't really care because I'd got yeah, membership. got all the membership sorted, it <laughs> and was then fine. I was never away, you know, it's just <laughs> like I was just constantly there and, you know, on the dance floor enjoying whatever I could enjoy from from the Hacienda it was amazing and how did you get that first gig at the number one club by accident by a very very happy accident a friend of my husband's her brother um I mean it sounds like a real long-winded connection but her brother knew this woman Adele who was putting on a night at the number one and she'd run out of money because she'd paid for the rent of the club and the flying posters whatever and she didn't have the money to pay a named DJ and he told her that I had lots of records which I did I've been building a record collection since I've been very small so we met, we talked about music and I think it probably took about half an hour and she said, yeah, I'll, I'll offer you 30 quid to play from nine till two. No one else was playing. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'd, I'd, I'd never DJed in a club before in my life. At that time, I didn't even have decks. I had the vinyl. But I didn't have the skills. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to use the equipment or anything. But what I did have was probably 10 years of clubbing experience because I've been clubbing since I've been 15. And a family that is so steeped in Manchester clubbing 
all of us have been clubbing for years. All of us collect records. I'm the youngest of eight. I've got six sisters and one brother, all with enviable record collections. So, and we've always in family parties had music, music, music. And my mum's a singer mm. and my dad likes liked whatever he liked. So I knew kind of how to construct a, a night, a soundtrack, a night for people to dance. And that that's just, you know, those are the tips, hints and tips that I mm. use when I got behind the decks to play this party. And the interesting thing was I wasn't actually bothered about making a fool of myself. I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind that, People could have laughed at me or, you know, seen that I'd made a mistake and and thought, you know, that didn't even cross my mind. What bothered me before I got there was that we were still in this culture, sus laws, stop and search. Um, black people were being pulled in for any old reason male, female, but, you know, definitely more male, but it had already happened to me that I'd been driving home and got pulled in by the police for no reason. So I knew it could happen. So I was more bothered about that happening because I'm driving on mm. my own and I'm dressed in a certain way. Um, and Bootle Street Police Station was just round the corner from Central Street. It was adjacent to the number one so I was more bothered about I could get pulled in here and every time I went to the number one I'd have that in my head mm. thinking it's a bit near the police station this place for a gay night a gay <laughs> a gay club and and with black people here it's a bit close but I think probably because it was a gay club they didn't bother us so much or maybe not, you know, but... And when was this? It was like eight, is this... What? 91. 91. 91, 92. Mm. So I was more bothered about that than about mm. making a fool of myself DJing. Yeah. And I knew after that first night that I'd enjoyed it so much that I was going to do it again. Mm. I knew because I just absolutely <laughs> loved it. Loved it. People danced to the music yeah. that I played. Like what I did had the effect that I wanted it to have and everybody enjoyed it and people talked about it. And and then from there, we went and saw Paul Cons and Lucy Cher, who were a bit Ginger Productions, and they were putting together this new night at the Hacienda called Flesh. And we went to see them to talk about taking over their second room. And they said yes. So I went from never having DJed, to the number one, to the Hacienda. And getting to the Hacienda and DJing for Flesh just opened the floodgates for me to go everywhere else. Mm. So. so I read in the book that you were saying, well, a couple of things. One was made me laugh. There was no Shazam back in the day. Yeah. So you had to go to, say, Spinning or yeah. the Underground Market and sing. Sing it. <laughs> <laughs> sing it or remember it. Or, yeah. Because also what DJs did in the 90s, I think they don't do it so much now because everything's 
mainly digital and you can't really hide um, the title of a track. If someone wants to take a mm. picture of it, they can take a picture of it. But back in the day, mm. we used to put white labels yeah. over things. So even if you went and had a little look over at the decks to see what the DJ was playing, you might not have seen yeah. anything at all or they'll have put a sticker over the name and it's just like, why even do that? <laughs> but we used to because it was the magic. like, that was part of the magic. So people couldn't get hold of it so easily. It's a lot easier now to get hold of a DJ's playlist now than it was in the mm. 90s. God, you had to really remember. So I actually have quite a good memory for tunes so if i hear a tune that i really like i can right. remember it mm. my twin can't she's just like <laughs> when did they play that and i was like oh well they played it before they played this 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 and this and she's just like how do you do that that's just the way my brain works <laughs> so you said also that your mum says that she went into labor with yeah. you in a twin when she was singing on the stage at the free trade hall yeah 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 and you're and born into music family legend has it that this is true you know my mum was on the stage with her band and her water broke and she ignored it and got to the end of the set and then you know ambulance <laughs> blah 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 and in comes me and my twin that's so dramatic it, it's a funny thing really because i do think there's a lot of songs from around the 60s and 50s you know jazz songs and and standards and stuff and R&B blues that I know that I don't have those records. Mm. So I really feel like there's been some kind of magical transference, whether it's come through the amniotic fluid. But they do say, <laughs> yeah, they, do, yeah. they do say that the vibrations of music do pass through to the babies. And I think that is, you know, I really do feel that that is a gift that my mum has given me because she was singing all the time, time and there's always been music in our house, all of the family are musical and, and it's like the blood in my veins. Music is yeah. all around us in mm, Manchester. It, is, it yeah. really is. And yeah. you would be hard pressed to avoid having a musical conversation with anybody in no. manchester it takes about 10 minutes you can talk to a stranger in the street it'll take about 10 minutes and there will be something always as a link so in the 60s i think it was in your book that you mentioned that there were sessions in manchester where you could literally go and dance and kind of like a sober lunchtime dance in manchester um because so it's always been in the dna my mum has told me that they used to sometimes go i think it was somewhere near tib lane or and the Kona coffee bar and all that kind of stuff. Yep. So they all, we were all joined um, by that that musical thread. And my uncle, uh, my family's very musical. My uncle used to play all the pianos and Kendall's. That was oh, his really? job. He used to sit, and he's a jazz musician as well That's at incredible. night. But he used to sit and, and play the piano. So we used to go and visit him. The other thing that made me laugh in your book about flesh is the fact that because you say at the time, Manchester wasn't really a friendly place for gay people no. or people of colour at all. I mean, you talk about those kind of chrome and glass bars, 
that were in the city centre, like Horts and Ronnie's. Horts went Hortz. to. God, it was great though. <laughs> it made me go down memory lane. <laughs> I know, but all like they know, like I was the shoulder pads. There. It was the place to go. I used to go underage. Yeah, but didn't we? <laughs> so it's, but those clubs, the other clubs, that, you know, that were. You I've got to, a picture of that. Have you? With me and my twin with my mum at Horts. <laughs> There was Horts and Ronnie's, yeah. and then then I yeah. used to love Corbiers. Yeah, Corbiers. Yeah, well. love, my dad, my, my friend's dad bought Corbiers. And really? Yeah. So we were like you. You said you got your membership at the Hacienda. Yeah, we suddenly were. were like cool because yeah. they owned Corbiers. But a lot of those clubs had to move to the outskirts of town, didn't you? Because of the sus laws. Absolutely. And, but Flesh made it. Well, it kind of turned it into Gaychester, didn't it? In a well, way, the, it was well, like, this is what happened, yeah. and this is why. Um, I think this is why those changes with gay culture at that time were so important mm. and also have been underestimated because when you put it into context with what was happening socially, culturally and politically at that time, to have a gay night at the biggest club in Manchester, bear in mind, we did have it on a Wednesday. We didn't have it on a Saturday because probably if we'd have had it on a Saturday, it would have been too dangerous mm. to have 1,500 gays descending on the centre of Manchester. It would have been too, mm. it would have been, it wouldn't have been safe. It was safer to do it on a Wednesday, last Wednesday of every month. It was a school night. We were full every month, every month, you know, and it wasn't full with a load of people that didn't have any work either. It was fashion designers, restaurateurs, you name it, dancers, singers, lots of professional people, people that work for the city council. I had lots of friends that worked for the city council that, that went to flesh. Um and it really flew in the face of the negative press that had been surrounding gay people and queer culture for years because we've come off the back of the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. The government made AIDS a gay disease. What Flesh did yeah. was it said, we're here. We are out, we are proud, we are not going to hide away and we are going to create this safe space for gay people to come and enjoy a club night as they want to enjoy it. We're not in basements anymore, we're above ground, we're not blacked out windows anymore. You can see who we are, where we are, how we're doing it and this is this is us, mm. you know, we're not hiding anymore. And Paul Cons is a magician in terms of marketing. And he came up with It's Queer Up North and Gaychester. And, you know, looking back on it, it's like, it's magnificent what he and Lucy Cher achieved because they made it cool to be gay. They made it cool to be queer. Whereas previously, I mean, we still ran the risk of getting our heads kicked in. You know, we still ran the risk of the aggressions walking through town. But they created a night that was safe, that was also decadent mm. and glamorous. That actually, the press 
started to want to write about. And off, coming off the back of Section 28, where it hadn't, it wasn't even legal to talk about anything same sex in the media, in the press, in the, you know, whatever. You couldn't talk about it in schools, in colleges, in books, in in any sort of publications or media. But Flesh just managed to catch a wave of, the wave of interest. Mm. Like, what are they doing? In fact, it made it so cool to be gay. Straight people could not get in unless they were with gay people. Yeah, it had never been done before. And you said in the book that the, um, there's often friends just snogging each other. And this is what it did. This is what it did. Yeah. It made people even risk being known as gay. So mm. they would kiss their best mates on the door just to get in. Mm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what triumph. a turnaround. <laughs> what a triumph. Yeah. And it's what, bear in mind also, flesh was the first time they'd done anything really gay mm. at the Hacienda in the nine years mm. of it had already had of operation. So it was a massive culture change, culture shift, but it was also the night that made money yeah. for the Hacienda. And this whole thing about the pink pound came around 92, 93, 94 with people realizing that there was an economy that could be tapped into with queer culture as well. So it, it, it was at the forefront of that massive development mm. and that massive attempt to integrate one culture into another. It was just brilliant. And arguably kept the Hacienda going for longer well, than it, it did. could have done because it was making <laughs> it the did, money but on they that never night. talk about <laughs> no, that because that. it's not part of no. the disaster story. Yeah. It's not part of that arc of the story where it was how not to. That was very much how to. Mm. And also that whole uh, movement that was created by Flesh inspired uh, Russell T Davies yeah. as well. So. Yeah, with Queer as Folk. Yeah. It, it inspired a lot of artists and designers and whoever, you know. But Russell is very open about, you know, how it influenced his storytelling. Mm. Mm. And, you know, for, for sure he was a regular there. So. <laughs> and one thing that you talk about in the book is you say that your residency at the Hacienda was your ticket into um, the, the boys club and, yeah. and, and propelled you on to a career where you've you've entertained DJ for thousands and millions of people around, yeah. around the globe. You, you're vocal on the fact that it was completely and probably still is the music industry still extremely male dominated. Yeah. And Annie Mack said in a forward that she was angry the fact that she'd never been able to read a book about dance music written by a, a woman and a woman of color before yeah. so what's your views on that how's that changed yeah well um, I mean it's changing now I think because I've got a book coming out Smoking Joe's got a book coming out you know they're starting to listen to other people's stories but one thing I would also say about that is it's also publishing that's at fault because it's who commissions these books and what books and what stories are being commissioned. And it hasn't been important up until 2021, whenever, to 
write or hear from those people. That is just like, wow. Mm. You know, it's taken all those years for somebody to say, we want to hear that story. Yeah. And what a story. I mean, the book is 200, is it 200 pages long? It feels like it could be. 250 50. pages. 250 it, it, like, pages and everything. More everybody <laughs> says, you know, they, they, it, it should be longer. Yeah. It, it could have been longer. I know how much was cut out of it. <laughs> We're sitting <laughs> in the room with your publisher at the moment as well. So, But, hope you know, I have, sec- I don't know whether I'd write a second book about specifically this subject Mm. but I know I have second third fourth book Mm. in me to write and I've already got the ideas of it you should absolutely because you you know your storytelling is absolutely incredible amazing but not easy no so what was that process like (laughs) um yeah I mean there were loads of issues with writing the book because (laughs) this is funny when they said your book's been commissioned, they said, when do you think you can have this book written by? And we were in lockdown. So I was like, well, I'll do it in a year because I was expecting lockdown to continue. We'd already, this was the end of year two and, and they were still kind of umming and ahhing about whether we were even going to get Christmas mm. at the end of 2020, mm. 2021. Yeah. They were kind of umming and ahhing mm. about it. But then they weren't. And they released the bats. <laughs> <laughs> and they yeah. said, oh, we can have Christmas and we can have New Year. Oh, and by the way, we can have 2022. So all the, all the locks were off. Mm. And I'd said, I'll write it in a year. So let's... You know, my deadline was December 2022. And then I got loads of bookings. I was working every weekend, three, four times a week, um, bars, clubs, festivals, you name it. And I was like, oh, my God, how am I actually going to do this? And it was then that I realized how ambitious the book was because the book isn't just about me. So it, it wasn't just me writing my story. I had to interview 50 odd people and get their contribution and their opinions. And I remember there was a point around the around May, in fact, when my friend Camilla said, have you started writing it yet? <laughs> <laughs> and I snapped at her. We were walking, <laughs> we were walking through Heaton Park. And I kind of snappily turned around and said, I'm still doing the interviews. And she's like, When's your deadline? <laughs> and I said, December. And she went, I think you need to start getting it all together. So there was another point around April when I contacted the ed- commissioning editor in a complete panic saying I am still subscribe um transcribing these interviews I'm transcribing and I can't write and I'm running out of time and I was freaking out because it was just like so by the beginning of November I had practically everything together and um I was like shut the door don't talk to anyone so I was DJing and I had a driver so I'd drive to places and come back and 
I just have to be like really focused about doors closed, phone off, writing, writing, writing. And I was watching Day Turn tonight many times, like 18 hour days, 19 hour days. Like sometimes I didn't even get to bed. And I was just like, it was this void of (laughs) what day is it? I don't even know what day it is, but I made the deadline. It's incredible. I absolutely made that deadline and I was so happy. I was like, yes, I've got the book in. It's great. I am so proud of this book because such a lot of work's gone into it that people won't actually see. And there's the, then there's also that disappointment with, you know, I didn't get this person in and I didn't get to tell that bit of the story. And I, I had to make real executive decisions over what story do I really want to tell? And in the end, it was like, I want to tell the story that is going to inspire people to do this job. And that for whatever happens, they will feel like I can, there is something that is going to help me to navigate this journey. Mm. I've got a lot of advice in there from lots of different people. We've all been through, you know, there's, there's a pandemic chapter with lots of people who have all been through it professionally and personally, and we've all come through it. And I thought, I, I thought it was important to tell that story because it happened, mm. first of all, but it also gives that very personal cost. That's so powerful, that that writing about the pandemic and that really moved me because I think we've all got PTSD from that yeah. period of our lives and everybody was impacted by it but in very different ways and your description of that I mean one of the lighter moments is when I think you said even the chihuahua next door you, <laughs> the, the, its breath weren't made you want to barbecue the dog that made me laugh my head off <laughs> yeah you know it's funny as well because I think about that I wrote it and then you know the book's coming and everything and people my neighbors are seeing me on the news and and my next door neighbor said oh I saw you have the book out so I was like yeah 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 it's in Waterstones and then when we closed the door I was like god the dog the dog I made me laugh my head off but I mean (laughs) she'll know she knows now what you were thinking Stream GM. Yes. Just talk a little bit about that because most Mancunians were touched and lifted by that whole project. Yeah, yeah. and I, I thought it was really important to cover that story because in one way it said it reminds people or it tells people that didn't know that we in the North were kind of used as guinea pigs for the government going through the pandemic, whether, you know, when it was zoned off rules and regulations, bubble of three, six, you know, timings, this, that, and the other. And when they decided to do the streams, it was, what can we do to keep people inside the houses? Because we we were told before anybody else that we could not leave the house. We were told before anybody else and, you know, entertainment was told that that was it. First to stop, the first thing to stop was hospitality and events. And 
out of that came this really beautiful idea. I mean, Sasha says in the book that they only thought it was going to last a couple of weeks, but it was um, it was important to create something that was going to give people, you know, something to listen to, something to do, mm. something to distract themselves. And also on a work level, it was going to give some people a little bit of hope. People like me, DJs like me, a little bit of hope that, yeah, we can still do mm. this thing that we have trained for years to do. And it is important to do this thing and share this thing with whoever wants to watch it. And it was important to get the numbers into the book because yeah. that first stream, the Maybank holiday stream that we did for the Hacienda had 5 million views. You know, you can't even fit 5 million people in a no, nightclub. It, it was just the most incredible event and the incredible pulling together of people. Mm. And even I heard Sasha interviewed a bit ago, which reminded me that we as DJs were also freaked out about going to do this event in because we weren't allowed to drive, that we had to get a letter of permission from the city council. So Andy Burnham had to get each of us a letter saying that we were allowed to be on the street to drive to do this stream and to drive back. I mean, it was a, almost like a covert operation. But I do remember that. Yeah, first. but people, when they're watching it, won't have realised no, how much... How no. much you know, what the restrictions were mm. about actually putting that thing together and yeah. putting it out there. Yeah. You it, know. Yeah. I remember we had it on at home and I remember there was one night that was a warm kind of afternoon and we'd had an Aperol spritz in the, in the garden. It, you know, you just crank couldn't wait up. for them to come. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> Play it loud, crank it, it up. amazing. And share it with your neighbours. <laughs> <With your neighbors. laughs> completely. It yeah. was so much fun. Yeah. And obviously I think it's very much worth mentioning the fact that that also raised £605,000 yeah. in donations. And that I know from what Sasha told me that some of the grant applications were heartbreaking. Yeah, so, they were. So again, that's Manchester really thinking... It helped so many people, the professionals, people that needed the money, us at home. It was a, an yeah, amazing Yeah, and it achievement. was a real northern thing mm. because we didn't really see that level of care for the community, no. by the community, anywhere yeah. else in the country. Yeah, I totally We didn't agree. see it. You said that the one good thing that's come out of the pandemic is that it's brought back the core values of acid house yeah. music. Peace, which is, love, <laughs> unity and respect. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. It, I, I think it made us more aware of what the core values were and what we needed in order to get back to it. Mm. And it also brought about a real sense of community and of collaboration and of us having to work together to achieve things with also bear in mind coming out of it we've not been working for two yeah. years so we've got very small amount of money but to create these things that you wouldn't even have been able to see the join you know like... oh, absolutely and it, it's definitely we talk at Roland Ransfield about the importance of putting more in than we take out yeah. and 
And we Manchester all did. did that. I mean, everybody. <laughs> Manchester did. Manchester did it in no uncertain terms because people were also giving and giving and giving. And every stream we did, they were giving more. But people were willing to give and to contribute even that little bit to make things work and to make things nice in a time where everybody was like up against it. We were losing people at a rate of knots in my family, but like that there were five deaths in my family and we didn't even get to go to the funerals. So it was just that really beautiful thing about Manchester, which is one of the real reasons that I came back, is that the community spirit here is so strong. Mm. And when we do need to pull together, we really do. Mm. And it is just one of the most magnificent characters of this place, this city, the people that I am so proud to come from. You know, I... I am proud every day to be a Manx because that is what I call real life and real people. And that's how I like to do business. That is wonderful. And I concur completely. <laughs> that leads us into the Manchester quickfire round, yeah, I think. Go for it. So let's have a go. Favourite dance track that makes you think of Manchester? There are many, but I... It does always come back to New Order Blue Monday. Mm. It's been played and played and played and played and overplayed and everybody says Blue Monday because it's Manchester and because it's New Order. But I know I can still play that record wherever I go. <laughs> France, Lithuania, um, Glastonbury, you name it. I played it at a gig maybe a couple of months ago as my last record. When the record finished, they were like, one more tune, one more tune. And I was like, no. Drop the mic. <laughs> That's where That's I end. It. That's where I end because that record is so perfect, you know, and it just grows and it grows. And to watch people singing along to it. Love it. Three words to describe flesh at the Hacienda. <laughs> Um, yeah, that. <laughs> best noise in the world. Yeah, best noise in the world. Champagne corks popping. Fun, flirty, and um, forward. Love it. Okay, what do you order at the chippy? Always large card, large chips, mushy peas. Fantastic. Do you have it in a in a tray on a plate? I. Do you know? It, it comes home in a tray. <laughs> Half of it does not make the plate <laughs> yeah. because I've already eaten it. Oh, <laughs> I've already, I can't even get it out of the chippy before I've got my paws in it. I've got my snout in the bag and I'm driving with one hand and I've got, I, I'm just a demon with fish and chips. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's like crack. <laughs> And when you were away from Manchester and you're traveling the world before you came back seven years ago, what did you miss most? My family. And it really was my family and my family and my friends. And there was a moment when I, when I was packing up my um, apartment in Ibiza and I was coming home. And I remember I was with 
one particular girl who she was like, well, why are you going? And I said, because I've got no friends here. And she said, yes, you have. I went, no, my real friends are in the UK and my real family is in Manchester. I know where those people were. And I just knew I was around the wrong people. But more, I knew the right people weren't where I was. So, yeah. The right people were in Manchester. The right people were in <laughs> Manchester. And I've said, you know, I've proved it, you know, because people are now like, oh my God, why is this happening for you? And why is that happening for you? It's like, I changed the people I was around. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I've changed is the people I was around because I am the same person. Yeah. I am exactly the same person. Yeah. All I've changed is. You're back in the right environment <laughs> yeah. now, aren't you? Yeah, you have to repot plants, you know. Let's, yeah. get, <laughs> let's get into the Peter Sellers being there of it. But, you know, you do have to repot yourself occasionally. Yeah. You know, oh, sometimes you can be root bound. You know, there's a moment where you, you know, even if it's good for you, you can be root bound. You need to move on. And when it's not good for you and you're not, putting out the shoots that you need to be you, you just need to move yeah it's like yeah we're not a trees repot yourself I repot love that yourself. I've never heard that before and that's a great <laughs> thing to think about Paulette thank you so much for joining us on We Built This City you're very um, welcome I would highly recommend anyone listening to read Welcome to the Club and not just music fans or manx because for me it's like a dance with life it's beautiful yeah. there's so many lessons and so much love and joy and um pain and, and heart and pain so much I'm not yeah. afraid of addressing yeah. the issues you know I do talk about having a breakdown mm. I think it's important to show the reality of it yeah. and also to be vulnerable in front of people I'm not afraid of showing that side of the creative life mm. because I think it's important for all creatives to understand that there is a bigger picture of it. It's not all about the highs of it, the champagne corks popping, the first class jet, business class, you name it. And sometimes things go wrong. But it's nice to show that things can go wrong and you can still have a 30-year career. Yeah. That it doesn't have to end. Because I think what occasionally happens with creators is that they'll meet that block and then it's like, right, that's it, it's over. I'm done. And they will walk away from it. And you have to walk through. Sometimes you have to go through a bit of pain mm. to get to the next you know, it's like growing pains. You have to go through the next stage to get to the next level. Yeah. yeah. And you've done that. And you, like you say, you sustained such a, a long career and you look like you're having a whale of a time yeah, now. Yeah, you still, still have to you're hustle. Still... I told you about that. <laughs> still hustling. <laughs> you know, that message full of expletives. <laughs> so what, and what have you got coming up now? Just tell us quickly. That, yeah, coming. there's loads. So there's, um, I'm still on the book tour. So that I'm working on, there's a really nice event for International Women's Day coming up at the Whitworth Art Gallery, Thursday late. Me, in conversation with Afro Deutsche, Eavesdrop Collective, will be DJing 
around it. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be nice. gorgeous. Yeah. I'm working on something with the British Library for May. And that is just like, this has to be nailed down. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit superstitious about mentioning it, but I also want to put it out in the mm -hmm. ether so it's set. This is going to happen. <laughs> this is definitely going to happen. And when it does, for that book. Wow, exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's why everyone Amazing. writes a book, you know, to get, it's the library yeah. for me is so important yeah. that it goes there for anyone that wants to research this, we'll find out about lots of women in the music industry, not lots of men in the yeah. music industry and it will be in the British Library. Amazing. <laughs> well on that note thank you so much for everything and um, good luck with everything that's coming thank up. Thank you. And thank you for helping us to build this city. Oh gosh yeah and I will continue <laughs> to tick 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 put a little bit of concrete on there another brick another brick. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah thank you. DJ Paulette built the city by inspiring the next generation of creatives, by knowing when to repot herself, and by welcoming everyone to the club. On the next episode of We Built the City, you'll hear from another inspiring born, bred, or adopted monk as I work my way to build this collection of 100 voices. You'll be able to hear that episode on the 14th of March. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at We Built The City Pod, where you can see pictures of all our guests in their favourite places around Manchester. This podcast was produced by Purposeful Podcasts. If you want to build a community around your business or your brand, please do get in touch with our amazing team through our website at purposefulpodcast.com. If you'd like to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or x at rdpr tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 27 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, please don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you. Thank you.